1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 12. Let me start this morning, if you would, with a very familiar poem by the author, a poet, a poem by the poet John Godfrey Sachs. You've probably heard of it. It's entitled The Blind Men and the Elephant. It starts like this. It was six men of Indostan, two learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy the mind. And then the poem goes on to describe these six men who were trying to attempt, they were blind, attempting to say what an elephant is. So the first blind man touched the side of the elephant, and he said the elephant must be a wall. The second one felt the tusk, and he said the elephant is like the spear. The third one grabbed the trunk, and he said it's a snake. The fourth man felt the legs and the roughness of the skin and said the elephant is like a tree. The fifth one took hold of its ear and said the elephant's like a waving fan. And the sixth blind man seized the tail, and he concluded to himself, the elephant is like a rope. Well, the end of the poem is humorous, a humorous conclusion to their failed attempt at identifying properly the elephant. It goes like this. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, its seating stiff and strong. Though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. So, I think it's important that when it comes to controversial subjects like speaking in tongues, we can have a tendency to grab onto one thing and not see the whole picture, especially when voices have disputed loud and long, and they have in this area. And holding their opinions, it's steeding, exceeding stiff and strong. And some of us and some folks want to just avoid the whole controversy in itself by ignoring the elephant that's actually in the room. Now, here's the deal. We never do that at fellowship. So we're not going to do it as we work our way through chapter 14. So I want to tell you for the, this week and the following, next two weeks, following two weeks, it's not for the lighthearted as we tackle this elephant called tongues, Okay. So hang in there with us. Let me first remind us, too, of the church at Corinth. Uh, we know today there, was tr there is tremendous tension and polarization when it comes to this issue of tongues on one side or the other. And it was the same in Corinth. Fellowship Corinth Church, I need to remind you, was the first church in that city planted by Paul, and it was planted right in the middle of a pagan culture, and we've seen it through the book, wild as wild can be. And in light of that, do we expect anything different that these believers in Corinth were immature, and in their immaturity, here's what they did. They made a conclusion, they came to a conclusion that the speaking in tongues was the number one key element for as evidence that would give evidence to spiritual maturity. Their crowning evidence of a spiritual person was the ability to speak in an unknown utterance or tongue. Now here's what else we know just from last week, chapter 13. If you didn't hear Monty's sermon on the love chapter, you need to hear it and rethink what you've heard at weddings in different places. It was gorgeous. But we showed last week in 13 
that the Corinthians had elevated all the spiritual gifts over the action that the spiritual gifts were supposed to produce, which was love for the people in the body, love for one another. And here we find out in 14, some ways Paul's been building up to this because this was the crux issue in Corinth. They had elevated tongues, and Paul is saying here, you needs to be de-elevated, not wiped out, not thrown away, but put in its proper place. One writer, I love what he said this week, he said, the church in Corinth was an alive place, and all that we've heard, we can imagine, man, it was a little bit of a carnival action going on, but he said it was alive like a cancer cell reproducing more cancer cells. So that's our picture in Corinth. Now here's typically, okay, just generally speaking, there are two extremes when it comes to this issue of tongues. There are the never-tonguers and their make-tongues-great-again side, right? <laughs> now, if that sounds familiar, <laughs> if that sounds familiar, I don't know why. But the, those of us in the middle are sometimes left confused, all right? It sounds a little bit familiar with what's going on in our world. However, I want to tell us this morning, part of what we need to do is just read our Bibles, Read our Bibles, and it brings clarity. So we're going to walk through this passage with that this morning. I also want to say, in closing, as we get to the verses, is we would do wise to listen to the counsel of Dr. J.I. Packer when he says, Tongues is an area of study where undue dogmatism is unwise and where spiritual sensitivity is vital. And so in light of that, let's begin. First, Paul starts with three crucial commands in in verse 1. 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul here gives us three commands, and the first one is pursue love, or literally follow the way of love. Of love. Now, here's what Paul does. He takes all of chapter 13, scoops it up, and pours pours it into this two-word, very pointed statement: pursue love. He brings all the way to chapter 13 into those two words: pursue love. Why? Because you and I know that the church, if it's anything, it is a place where we come together as a people of God and use the spiritual gifts given by God to live out the one another's amongst ourselves. It is really a word picture, pursue love is, of a hound chasing a rabbit, or maybe me chasing a wild turkey in the springtime. It's an all-out, go-for-broke chase. It is really to be the priority of the body above everything else. So, pursue love. Secondly, Paul says there, second command, just read the Bible, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Yes, pray for them, ask God for them, find out what yours are and put them to action. Uh, Corinthians 12, 11 said, tells us that God gives us spiritual gifts as he determines. They are good for us, good for the body, given by God. He knows who to give them to. He, needs what, who knew, he knows what to give each person in order that the body may be built up. So Paul says, desire these. And then you have a third command, and he says, and especially desire the gift of prophecy. 
So my name could be Jeff Zaya, Isaiah's first cousin. No, that's not what he's talking about here. So I think the next logical step is when he says, especially desire this gift, that should get our attention here. What does that mean to prophesy? Or what does the gift of prophecy mean? So I have a working definition for us from John Piper. It's in your notes. You can read along with me. It says, it is a regulated message or report in human words, usually made to the gathered believers based on a spontaneous personal revelation from the Holy Spirit for the purpose, this is crucial, edification, encouragement, consolation, which means comfort or guidance, but not necessarily free from human error. And this needing assessment on the basis of the biblical scriptures or to test it from the scriptures with mature spiritual wisdom. Now here's what else Paul says about this gift of prophecy. Excuse me. First Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21. Do not, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, meaning test them by the scriptures to see if they correspond with the truth of God's word. Hold fast what is good. And I would add to that, not because I'm adding to scripture, but he's he's implying here. Throw out the rest. Hold on to what is good, throw out the bad. So let me first sort of unpack this for us this morning. Let me tell you what prophecy is not. Sometimes to know what to do, I need to look at what not to do. Prophecy is not preaching or teaching. Anytime prophecy is described as preaching or teaching or giving a sermon, uh, that causes a trouble for us when we look at the scriptures because we know the gift of preaching or teaching is a gift given by God to certain people for the building up of the body. Everybody does not get the gift of preaching and teaching, correct? But Paul says here, this is a gift for everyone, especially the gift of prophecy. Or especially, yeah, especially the gift of prophecy. So it can't be preaching or teaching. Secondly, it is not inspired it is not inerrant. It has no authority. It's not equal to God's word. If it were inspired and inerrant, like the word of God, then we would be continually adding to these 66 books, and we know we can do that. These 66 books have been canonized, meaning it is finished. There's no more revelation. The scripture actually warns us if you add one letter, or take away one letter from this book, Paul says, anathema, that you are to be damned and cursed. This book is closed until Jesus returns. So we can't do that. It's not inspired, and it's not inerrant. <clears throat> Lastly, I thought of this because I used to do this early in our marriage. <laughs> it is not you being the Holy Spirit to someone else to make them get something you think they need to get. My wife did that all the time. Did I say, I did that? I meant to say Jenna did that. <laughs> Sorry. No, I did do that. So here's what it is. From a Christian to a Christian. Let me summarize this and then illustrate. It is to bring the truth of the Word of God to bear upon the person or whole body for edification, encouragement, comfort, or guidance. 
excuse me, so that we have a prophetic dynamic in our relationships with one another. It is a gift to people, not a command. It's not a hammer. It's be, to be done carefully with discernment. And it must be tested by the Scriptures to see if it corresponds to them, and if not, we throw it out. So here's what that means for us. To use this gift of prophecy that Paul tells us especially desire for this gift, you and I must have a thorough working of the Scriptures and knowledge of the Scriptures in order to use it appropriately. So if you're young in your faith, there's a good chance you wouldn't be using this gift. Okay, so it means a lot because we bring the bear to Word of God particularly. Uh, let me say, put it this way. These are not words divorced from Scripture, but clarifies the truth of Scripture in the circumstances of the person you give them to. Now let me illustrate, okay? <clears throat> About 17 and a half years ago, uh, my wife came to me out of the blue with a spontaneous impression from God in her heart and mind that we were to adopt a child. It was a shock to me because I had not heard from Jesus on that matter. We had three little rugrats, and the best we were doing at that time were putting them on leashes and putting them around trees in the backyard, right? That's what it felt like. They were killing us. And um, I just said, no way. So I did not listen to her impression, which I believe, knowing what this means, prophecy, was God using her to bring the Word of God to bear on my life. Boy, I'm glad God got my attention. <laughs> you know the rest of the story. If you know our family, we have a 16-year-old daughter named Joelle. Years ago, there was a mutual friend of mine and a mutual friend of Monty's, and neither one of us knew that he, he knew both of us. He sends me an email, and he, he said, I feel impressed upon the Lord, knowing my situation, that I was leaving the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ. I had just finished up seminary, and I was looking for the church to pastor. And he knew there was a little fellow down in Murfreesboro who had planted a church and was looking a teammate. And he said... I think this would be a good fit. And the Lord laid that on his heart. And he sent me an email and he said, maybe y'all need to talk. Well, the rest is history. I think it's a beautiful illustration. I remember when I was a first year staff member. It's hard to cry and look out your glasses. Gosh, it Moses. Uh, I remember I was a first year staff member with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I was emceeing a college retreat and our speaker for that uh, retreat was Dr. Crawford Ritz. And after the conference, he came up to me, and, and I know Crawford now, and you know, speak with him on the Family Life Speaker team, and, and didn't know him from Adam, just knew he was a great Bible teacher then. He, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you that you have some communication gifts, and you need to pursue them. I looked around, I thought, Who, who's he talking about? Country bumpkin, can't pronounce words, a little bit funny, maybe a lot funny, but, but I was as surprised as anything. And, but for some reason, I never forgot that in this trajectory as I look back over my life, 
has led me down this road that I never thought, never in a hundred years thought I would be a teaching pastor at a church. And so I believe that was a great example. And then lastly, I'm reminded of John Piper's example I heard this week. He said he was preaching one Sunday morning and he something came to mind in a spontaneous way in his sermon that was not in his notes. And he was speaking about small groups and small group Bible studies. And he looked to his left out the church window and he said, wouldn't it be great if there was a small group Bible study taking place on the 34th floor of the ITF tower that obviously stood next to the church. And afterwards, a lady came up and said, I work on the 34th floor of that tower. And I have thought about over the last few weeks starting a small group. So I believe those are great examples. Now, Piper also tells the example, I think, of what not to do. Uh, this guy came up to him. His wife was pregnant. And he said to Piper, he said, look, I hate to tell you this, but the Lord's told me that your wife's going to give birth to a girl which is not the bad part, but she's going to die in childbirth. Now, now John Piper says he, he didn't tell his wife that, which I think was pretty wise, right? Scared to death. But as she was birthing the baby, he was thinking, guess what? She didn't die and it was a boy, right? So you, you, you throw that stuff out. That's why it takes maturity. Nobody in their right mind that knows the Scripture would come up and say such a thing. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Now, some of you, when you hear the definitions and illustrations, you're thinking, but wouldn't it be cool to be able to predict the future, speak to the future like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Malachi, some of the old... How many of you like to do that? Come on, tell the truth. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I think we can. I think we can predict the future in a prophetic kind of way, but in a very limited way, unlike Isaiah or Jeremiah, when it comes from a Christian to a non-Christian. If you are a Christian, you can tell a non-Christian, you can bring to bear the truth of the Word of God to them. Matter of fact, no one is better qualified to do that than a Christ follower when we say something like Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. They may ask, why is the world so messed up? And we can say, well, we know. We know why it is. And we know how it's all going to end. <laughs> and, and we know why this mess is going on. And then they might respond, how in the world can you say that? What are you, some kind of prophet? And we go, well, <laughs> I actually am. So in that limited way, we certainly can speak to that. Funny you should mention, that's exactly what I am, because the Word of God tells me that. So, prophecy, three crucial commands. Now, in this passage, Paul speaks of one clear purpose in light of this sort of debate or contrasting between prophecy and tongues. Let's read verses 2 through 5 and verse 12. Verse 2, for one who speaks, for the one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. 
The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Verse 12. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So before we get into this one clear-cut purpose, let me take a minute just to back us up to define what tongues are in the Scripture, because this will lay the foundation for us as we move forward the next two weeks in this chapter. Tongues in the Bible are presented basically in two different ways. One is speaking your native language to a hearer or to a person who speaks another language and they hear what you're saying in their language. For example, I'm speaking in English now. If there was a person who spoke French, they would be hearing and didn't speak English. They would be hearing what I'm saying interpreted in French. Comadou, how do you say, comatalivu? Okay, thank you very much. Je suis à la montagne. That's my French. I am going to the mountains in the rain, in the rain, okay? <laughs> so, so here's our picture of that. It's Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly they came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. This is, Jesus, this is the disciples, followers of Christ. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking of Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in his own native tongue? And then it lists this a number of nations and races that were present there from every nation. And then I love verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking them, said they are filled with new wine. <laughs> there were some people who thought, man, they got to be drunk. What is going on there? This is, this is gorgeous in the sense that men and women from all over the world had descended on Jerusalem, as they did once a year, all the Jews came to celebrate, as Art spoke about earlier, Passover. And this is 50 days post the resurrection at the day of Pentecost. And there was a new evangelistic work going on that God was using his people to speak the gospel and the hearers heard them in their own particular language so that the gospel would begin to spread around the world. How do we know? Peter tells us later, the writer of Acts, Luke, tells us later that 3,000 came to Christ that one day. Now you tell me, does God still do that? I think he absolutely does that. 
And I know godly men who've told me story after story of actually seeing that happen. That would make sense in a new world, new work where no one had heard of Christ for that to happen and there'd be a language barrier there. Now that's the first presentation. The second presentation in Scripture uh, that the Scriptures gives us of tongues is what I think is present in this text this morning. It is a gift. In verse 1231 of Corinthians, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. And one of those rhetorical questions is, do all speak in tongues? The answer to that particular question, as well as the rest of those rhetorical questions, is no. So here's what it means. A gift of tongues is not necessary for salvation. It is not necessary to be spiritually mature. It is not better than gifts like helps or ministration, which God gives for the good of the body. But it is an ecstatic utterance, not intelligible for prayer and praise and communion with God. Paul says here, it is a value to you personally. When when it says there, it builds up that person. It's not saying that's selfish. It said, no, there's some value to it. It builds you up. But without an interpretation, it has no value to others. But with an interpretation, it builds you up and others. It's not a primary gift, and it can be very dangerous because it can become that. And that is what has happened here in Corinth. So we ask this question, has the gift of tongues presented in in the second way that I just talked about, has it ceased, or a theological word we could use was uh, is cessation. Has it ceased? My answer to you is, there are godly men on both sides of that argument. It is not an essential doctrine of Scripture. However, I will just add, to, and it's not the point of this text either. We're going to get to that in this clear-cut Uh, purpose. But my personal stance is this. I would call myself open but cautious, meaning I'm not a charismatic and I'm not a cessationist. I am not either one. And and as Ronald Reagan uh, quoted to the Russian leader, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, when they were talking about nuclear disarmament, you may remember that Reagan said, trust but verify. (laughs) And I think those are wise words for us when it comes to this gift of tongues. Trust, but verify. Matter of fact, I'd put it this way. If someone on a Sunday morning stood up in our body and began to speak in tongues, when they got through, we would ask for an interpreter. And if nobody uh, gave an interpretation, we would pick up the Bible and we would read 1 Corinthians 14. Does that make sense? And if their interpretation was given, then we would correspond it with the Scriptures. So, now that we have identified or defined tongues, let's just walk through this passage and see what the clear-cut purpose is. Verse 2. Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. The problem with tongues is it's unintelligible. No one understands him, Paul says, as he speaks mysteries to God. Verse 3, 
The benefit of prophecy in contrast to tongues is that it is intelligible. And therefore, when it's intelligible, you can understand what a person's saying. It can be used for the building up of the church, encouragement and comfort. Prophecy speaks to men so they can be built up in the Lord. Verse 4, the tongue speaker builds himself up while the prophecy speaker builds up the church. And again, just to be clear, that's not saying that uh, he's acting selfishly here. He is building him own self up in the Lord. In verse 5, does Paul want tongues to cease? How can we read our Bibles and read that? Paul says in verse 5, no, I'd like every one of you to speak in a tongue. And he tells us later that he does himself much more than anybody. But he much rather you speak in prophecy, and the reason in the, the person who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless it's interpreted because the whole church actually can be built up. Later in chapter 14, Paul actually says that he'd rather somebody speak five intelligible words of prophecy instead of 10,000 words of tongues. What an incredible ratio there because it can be understood and used for this clear-cut purpose, which is to build up the church. The whole point, matter of fact, of chapter 14 is that our speech will be used to build up the body of Christ. And Paul says it can't do that if you can't understand what someone is saying. So for clarity, Paul is not throwing shade on the value of tongues. He even says it has a personal benefit to those who have this gift. Paul's main objection is not the practice of speaking in tongues, but to the place that the practice speaking in tongues has been taking place. And that is the worship gathering without an interpretation. That's his objection. And his second objection is they have elevated this gift of tongues as the number one key evidence of spiritual maturity. And Paul is pushing back on both of those as hard as he can through the way Paul does. Very logical argument of what is true. Matter of fact, the building up of the body via prophecy is the big idea of this whole chapter. Here's how Dr. D.A. Carson puts it. I put this quote in your notes. Paul draws a distinction between a tongues kind of prophecy and a prophecy kind of prophecy and therefore reverses the order of rank on the basis of which one edifies and builds up the church. He throws shade on the Corinthians' emphasis on tongues as being the most important gift. Everybody with me so far? Thank you very much. Quoting Elvis there. Okay, Roman number number three. Then he gives, as Paul often does, three clarifying illustrations for us. Let's read verses 6 through 11. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute of the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. 
There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So, verse 6, Paul asks a rhetorical question. What good will I be to you? Answer, I won't be any good to you at all unless I bring you some kind of words of God to bear on your life that you can actually understand that are intelligible. That's his question and his answer to the Corinthians. And then, and, and he would basically say to that, the building up of the church demands intelligibility. God is not a God of chaos. 1 Corinthians 4.33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14.40, all things concerning the context of worship, it says, worship gathering should be done decently in order. So Paul is saying here, unintelligible words just flying around like chitter chatter, they bring chaos and confusion, not order and peace. Verse 7 through 11, Paul gives these three clarifying illustrations using musical instruments, using the bugle sound that speaks to soldiers in a foreign language. Now, the first one he does is use musical instruments. And I want to give you an example of the bad that he would be speaking of. Instruments that are not having a distinct tune or sound that, that, that bring chaos. So check this out. <laughs> Sounds like me trying to play, right? Especially with the, that's probably me in the background doing the coffee, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that brings no joy to us, no satisfaction. There, there's, there's no rhyme or reason for that kind of playing as the orchestra tunes up. Now, listen to this. I've always wanted to do that. We go to Joel's uh, concerts. I always think I could do that. You know, I could, you know. I wouldn't know what I'm doing, but I would. I think I would look good doing it, right? I have that. I do it from the backside like this. How's that look? Good. Okay. What a difference! There's nothing like gorgeous music, the fifth of Beethoven, and other great songs to to bring a real peace and order in our own souls. And so Paul uses that illustration. The second one he uses is a bugle used with soldiers. Every military person knows that there's certain things that a bugler can play to signal certain messages to soldiers. Imagine, if you would, a thousand soldiers on the battlefield and they wake up to this sound. No, no, no. Oh, 
I did, I did try to play the trumpet in seventh grade, and that's why I quit. So, <laughs> so they wouldn't know what to do. Have no indication. Now for the next one. Go ahead. Every soldier and many non-soldiers know right away, right away that that's reveille and it means rise and shine. And Paul is saying here, that's what clarity does. It directs folks the right way at the right time. And then, and then in verse 9, he says, if anyone speaks and you can't understand them, it's like speaking into the air. It would be like a basketball player shooting an air ball and what does the crowd scream? Air ball, air ball. And Paul is saying here, if you do that, if you speak and it's unintelligible, it'd be like saying air talk, air talk. And then the third illustration is a foreign language. And I have two friends of mine sent me a video from Maltese, speaking in Maltese, which is my second natural language. So... Some of you may agree with that. Let's see these guys. They actually do look like some of my kin folks, you know. <laughs> big, big and bald, right? Big and bald. So there's the Maltese. You and I have no idea what they're talking about. It's unintelligible. And yet you can sit here, even in my southern Johnston County mispronouncing dialect, you know exactly what I'm saying most of the time, right? <laughs> most of the time. So when Paul uses the word foreigner, he says, foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. He actually uses the word barbarian, a man whose language sounds like Bar, 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 bar. Paul is saying, if you continue with all this bar, 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 bar stuff in the church, you're no better than barbarians. So, I love this passage because it starts to bring clarity, a foundational clarity to this issue. But I even love it more because of what it says to you and I. This so what this morning, there's three distinct commands. Pursue love. And then I think big picture, pursue love in the, in the first part and desire spiritual gifts to use in the body, especially the gift of prophecy to in a mature way, discerning way from a gift of God to bring the word of God to bear on a particular circumstance when prompted by the Lord in a spontaneous way. Those are this dynamic relationships that can really increase and build up the church. That's what Paul's saying. But even more than that, I really think here this passage tells to us that when we come to church on Sunday morning, it's not just about what we get. It's walking in here with a spirit that is attentive to what God might say to us and through us for the benefit of of the body. If there's anything that we know for sure, God loves his church. His, his heart toward his church, his disposition toward his church is to build her up. And one way he does it is through our speech.
So take a minute to ask the question this morning, so what? What does it mean to apply this text to me this morning?